You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned into another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, you don't seem that talkative today, uh, almost as if you've suffered an injury to your mouth region. Well, you're going to go right at me right off the bat, huh? Well, I, can, I, I can speak just fine, thank you. You've been here for like 10, 10 minutes, you said like three words, just came in, opened up the refrigerator, started going through it. Maybe I just got nothing to say to you, Dundas. Well, that ever occur to you? That's possible, but maybe I thought you would want to uh, to explain to the listenership what's going on with, with, uh, with your grill. With your uh, the, the, the interior of the grill this week, I caught a caught a little bit of a knee underneath the chin uh, in jujitsu yesterday, and it made me bite my own tongue, uh, which just really will make you feel like an idiot the moment you do that. You know, you are you're an advertisement for my own sloth. People are always like, "Hey, man, why don't you why don't you train, man? Why don't you do some some grappling?" And then I then I see you always rolling in here with your limp. And your uh, your your busted up mouth, but and, see, and I, your chronic neck injury that that plagues you. But you will notice I'm not limping anymore. The limp is healed. My neck is fine, thanks to uh, the virtues of hot yoga, uh, which I heartily endorse. And this this tongue thing will heal. Although I am, I keep forgetting about it, and so I'm like, oh yeah, I'll eat some of these salted almonds. Oh God, like stuff like that happens a lot. But your daily lunchtime swig of straight vodka reminds you that perhaps there is. Oh a... no, that's that's medicinal now. Sure, it's, yes. it's antiseptic. I heard yeah. you have a a license for it. Yeah, to... I clean it. I, that's how I clean it out. Well, Ben, this week's music on the co-main event podcast comes to us courtesy of podcast listener Dirty Mike Newstead and his band Withdrawal. Wait, the dude's name is Dirty Mike and the band's name is something lame and boring like Withdrawal? Well, I don't know if I would say it's lame and boring, but I would say that you can probably tell from context via the one word band name that they are pretty hardcore. But why not like Dirty Mike and the Tijuana Hookers? Well, There's a is, band. That is something I feel like you need to take up with Mike Newstead. I'm not I'm necessarily with, with right me. Now. Not necessarily with me here on the podcast. I'm just saying, get at me, Dirty Mike. We can talk about some options. Anyway, they're pretty metal, which I think will give everyone who constantly complains that the music we have on the podcast is uh, made by computers. It will give them something to chew on and uh, the people who like the dance music something to complain about. So everyone will be happy with this choice. And by happy, you mean miserable. And as we normally do, if you if you like the music that you hear, you can you can find more of uh, withdrawals stuff. We'll put a link to their uh, music on the on the website comainevent.com. So if you want to find more, go there and check it out. Uh, this week's podcast, as usual, comes to us in three rounds. And round number one, Chael Sonnen is back in the win column. He's back in character, and he's back in contention in some division or other. And in round number two. After his second straight loss in the octagon, is Overeem just over? Reem? You couldn't resist, could you? See what I did there? Yeah. 
And in round number three, by all accounts, the debut of Fox Sports 1 was a smashing success, but what, if anything, does that mean moving forward? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. Sir Nigel Longstock is on assignment, so he is not here this week, but will return, we think, next week as long as he is able to uh, complete the conditions of his pre-release. Yeah, some, that- something about an indecency charge. So we, we think Master Tweet Theater will be back next week. Uh, but first, you know, like we always do about this time on the show, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Taylor Summers. He writes, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on Nick Newell. After improving to 10-0 and at World Series of Fighting 4, his ability as a fighter is evident, yet focus remains on his amputee status. Is it fair to uh, for focus to remain on this despite his performances? I guess we should say by way of of clarification before we begin this, that, that Nick Newell, the, uh, the world series of fighting, uh, competitor who only has one, one arm, uh, they, you know, he's, he's referred to as, as having a congenital amputee, uh, situation, but, uh, that just means that he was born without, yeah, without a full, I believe his left arm. Is that the one that he's missing? Yes. Uh, so, so amputee, amputee, he didn't, he didn't suffer an injury or a, or a terrible accident or anything like that. Um, but yeah, he, he is uh, 10 to no now, uh, to, I guess to specifically answer the question, is it fair for the focus to remain on this despite his performances? I don't know, probably not, but I think it's going to, I mean, you, you know, it's not, especially in this sport where, uh, you can't even have a, a female fight without the commentator saying like 10 or 12 unintentionally, uh, you know, uh, uh, patronizing things. Uh, people are probably going to talk about the fact that Nick Newell is a successful M- MMA fighter, despite the fact he only has one arm. You know, and it feels like one of those things where if we forced ourselves to not talk about it, it would be so much worse. Like it would be so much just cre- much weirder. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like, you know, uh, Somebody you, you you see with like one of your friends after a long time, uh, and uh, suddenly he has like a huge boil growing on his forehead, and you're just like, "So what you boil up to? Been up to? Uh, uh, you know, like, and you're just trying your best not to look at it, like that. No one is doing any favors there. Like, let's all just be frank about it, talk about it. I mean, I'm amazed. He seems to use it. To his advantage in ways like that yeah. choke he pulled off. Yes. That seemed like one where uh, he he knows exactly uh, how he can use that to his advantage. Uh, and I mean, it's one of those things where you think, well, hey, why doesn't he get caught with right hands all the time? Why doesn't somebody just throw a right high kick and kick him if he doesn't have you know a full uh, left arm and, and hand to block with? And yet, when you see him do it, you think he can't do it until he does it. And once you see it, then you're like, well. I can't really argue with that. I mean, the guy is going out there and winning fights and, you know, against tougher and tougher competition. I think if he didn't have just one arm that he probably would be in the UFC already. I think that they're hesitant because uh, they don't want to, you know, look like they're trying to get some kind of cheap publicity that way. And they want to be sure that, Hey, this guy can really do it. Uh, I think if, if he were some other guy and he were 10 to no, uh, the UFC would have taken a harder look at him by now. Yeah, I think that Boss Rudin correctly pointed out during his uh, World Series of Fighting, his most recent appearance, that you you can't really say that it's an advantage 
for him to only have one hand in a fight because it's clearly not. Yet at the same time, I think you brought up a good point that he, Nick Newell has certainly athletically advanced to the point where he is able uh, to use that uh, condition as as an advantage in a lot of situations. He's figured out uh, you know ways ways to get into positions and use techniques that that other guys can't really do. And you, yeah. I, I just this this morning I watched him win the uh, XFWC. QW nailed it title. Uh, and he, you know, the, 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 the commentator in that situation correctly points out that once he gets, uh, his opponent in a rear naked choke, the, uh, the counter that, that you, that a lot of guys use for the rear naked choke isn't there. Yeah. Because, you reach over and pull the yeah, hand. Yeah. You can't attack the, the hand that, that, you know, where, especially in MMA gloves, a lot of guys grab those and use it to break the, break the choke. That hand's not there. Yeah. And I mean, so, uh, but then, Again, like the reason you can't call it an advantage necessarily is because because the dude knows that that hand isn't there. He knows there's really only one arm he could, he's probably getting choked with, uh, or or maybe not, depending on how he pulled off that choke. I mean, I do jujitsu with a, a guy who's a black belt um, who has uh, one leg and is really really good, and he really knows how to use that because it stuff that I will do that will work on other people, like to get past their guard or to retain my own guard, it doesn't work on him because uh, his, his body type is just different because of that, and he knows how to use it. Uh, and uh, and he went to uh, Grappler's Quest at the UFC Fan Expo thing uh, recently as a black belt, got first place in his division. I mean, he, he's really good. So I think that uh, if anything, it just shows some of these people, like if you're sitting around like Chad Dundas being like, oh, well, I'm, I'm slothful and lazy, and therefore I can't go to jiu-jitsu. This guy kind of makes you look like an idiot. Fair point. Fair yeah. point. Also, uh, Nick Noel, you know, he hasn't really fought anyone of 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 serious note. So I guess like any other prospect, we'll have to wait and see how that how that goes as he begins to move up the ranks and fight tougher and tougher guys. Uh, the second piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Corey Whitechard. He writes. Though I had seen a lot of highlight footage of Pride Fighting Championships, I had only recently started watching the old fights in their entirety. I did this in part to see certain fighters during their heyday, particularly ones whom I am more familiar with from watching them in the UFC. After watching several Pride fights, I have... I have come to feel that the Japanese MMA rule system allows for a type of fighting that seems to produce much more violent matches than I'm used to seeing. I have three questions. Question number one, am I mistaken or is the average UFC fight less violent than the average pride fight? I'm just, uh, I'm just unused to seeing knees slash stomps slash kicks to the head of a downed opponent. Okay. Well, let's just, just answer that one. Yeah. Um, when you go back and are looking at the highlights, yeah, I see why it seems more violent. And, I mean, watching a dude get soccer kicked in the face is just, like, objectively more violent, I think, uh, than, you know, seeing the regular ground and pound under the unified MMA rules. So, yeah, it is more violent in a sense. Also, you're probably seeing the more violent ones because those are the ones people care to watch. Like, if you actually are going through, like, old Pride DVDs, like, where you're watching every fight on an event you'll see some pretty boring fights in yeah, there occasionally. Yeah, there's some stinkers in there for uh, sure. Especially because it was a different era also of MMA. So uh, that works for and against the violent fight theory. In some ways, um, you know, maybe you had guys like Rulon Gardner going in there and, and not doing a whole hell of a lot. But then you also had, especially in Pride, some dudes who were thrown to the wolves in there just because we knew they'd end up getting their shit soccer kicked. Uh, and everybody would love that. 
Yeah, you know the rule. I think you're right. The rules do. Uh, they they certainly were a little bit more liberal than they are over here uh, for athletic commission reasons. Uh, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's also I think correct to point out that that some of it is matchups. You know, there's just a lot more. I guess for lack of a better term, squash matches. Yeah. Not only in the Japanese pride system, but also just during that era of MMA, there was a lot bigger disparity between skill levels in guys that you were liable to see in the in the professional ring or cage. These these days, you know, I think in the UFC, especially you have a lot of guys who are really uh, of similar skill level. And, and, you know, to be a professional mixed martial artist, you have to be on a certain level. So there's not this huge disparity in ability between a lot of different guys. And I think that naturally uh, makes fights, I don't want to say more boring, but like certainly more competitive. And like, you're less likely to see, I think, crazy uh, just violent knockouts or whatever, because everybody in there essentially knows how to defend themselves. Yeah, properly. yeah every, everybody. And it's also a situation themselves. where the other guy's not going to take a huge risk to try to do that. Whereas if you're fighting Joe Schmo off the street in Pride, you know, if you're fighting Alberto Del Rio in Pride, why not yeah. try to kick him in the head a thousand times? Yeah, and as you mentioned with matchups, Pride didn't do the thing where like, well, you lost three in a row, now you got to go. It's like, hey. Are you exciting? Will you say yes to uh, being kneed in the skull while you are turtled up uh, on two weeks' notice? Yeah? If so, then we'll probably keep calling you back. Like There wasn't that same hyper-competitive environment, and they weren't afraid to make some crazy matches across weight classes. Vanderlei Silva fought Mark Hunt, for Christ's sakes, and that was before Mark Hunt lost weight so that he could make the heavyweight limit uh, in the UFC. That's insane when you think about it now. The second part of the question is, number two, are some of these guys just juiced the fuck up or what? Yes. Or what? <laughs> yes. The answer to that question is yes. They are juiced the fuck up. That is correct. Notoriously lacks drug testing, if any drug testing at all, over there in those days. And uh, uh, part number three, why have some of the guys who were viciously successful in Pride often failed to experience similar success in the UFC? Well, now I think we're just going to be speculating. You know, that, I don't know that there's one right answer to this to this question. I think that you could uh, you could throw a lot of different ideas out there. I think that some guys probably just spent the prime of their careers over in pride. And then by the time they, they got to the UFC, they were a little bit past their prime and, and had to adapt to a whole different kind of game uh, in the cage against different kinds of fighters with different rules and different lengths of rounds, for God's sake. Yeah. And that probably uh, caused havoc with a lot of guys' preparation. Um, secondly, you know, a lot of them were just juiced the fuck up. Yep, juiced or, the fuck up. Or that what? explains some of it, uh, I think. But you're right. It is... I think for a while there, people were looking for one explanation. Hey, why were some of the guys who were awesome in Pride not so awesome in the UFC? You know, some of them, it was an adjustment period, and some of them had, you know, they maybe weren't as great right away, but then built back up again. Uh, but a lot of different factors, I think, uh, to explain that. Yeah, and, you know, and during its heyday, certainly uh, a, a lot was made about Pride having the best fighters in the world you know, over the UFC. And, and, and a lot of that was because pride was paying guys more money and to go over there and fight. Um, and I thought that that was true. A lot of the time of the heavyweight division, they certainly had a much deeper and, and talent rich heavyweight division as compared to what the UFC had in those days when the UFC was running Andre Arlovsky and, 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 uh, 
Tim uh, Sylvia Tim over Sylvia and over again. out there. and Brandon uh, Lee Hinkle. Exactly. Uh, and that was true. But, like, you know, the other weight classes, Pride, Pride really uh, put an emphasis on those upper weight classes, guys who were heavyweights and then, you know, guys that would be light heavyweights in the, in the modern UFC. Uh, but, you know, as you get – as you trickle down into the lighter weight classes, there was not a ton of depth there. Uh, and so I think that – that caused this perception of pride having all these really great fighters that the UFC didn't have. Whereas I was never a hundred percent sure if that was truly the case. So I think that, that you, you started to see uh, some of that proved when, when guys started to come over, you know, that they just didn't probably didn't dominate the UFC the way I think everybody thought that they always would. Uh, and then, you know, just as a side note, some of the, some of the best guys never made it case in point, Fedor Emelianenko just yeah. never fought in the UFC because of crazy managerial situations. And it's worth noting that a lot of those guys, I mean, it's easy to look back now and be like, oh, the Pride guys sucked when they got to the UFC. Because it's not true. I mean, we just saw Shogun fight. He was a former UFC light heavyweight champion. Uh, you know, he came over here and did poorly and then well and then kind of drifting toward poorly again. Uh, Overeem turned into a completely different human being. Uh, and, you know, Vanderlei Silva uh, went, went through some rough spots and now seems like he's pulling it back together a little bit now. Dan Henderson, uh, who started doing really well toward the end of the Pride era uh, and then came over and did well in the UFC. I mean, there's a. Uh, Anderson Silva, for Christ's sakes, uh, fought in Pride. So it's easy now to look at some of those guys and be like, oh, hey, Crow Cop, where you at now? Uh, but, you know. If anything, I think the the distance we have now on Pride tells us that uh, the, anybody trying to argue Pride was better, UFC bet, was better, uh, it's not that simple. It's a little more complex than that. Just holding on to old message board gripes. <laughs> yes, that no one cares about anymore. The next question comes from Brady Carlson. Uh, Is there a better example of Dana White's fleeting love than Uriah Hall? Coming out of the Ultimate Fighter show, Dana professed his love for Uriah's style and aggression. But after his high-five exhibition against John Howard, Dana now proclaims that Uriah Hall is not a fighter. Is this just Dana being honest, or is his love really this volatile? I'm going to say both. Yeah. A little bit of both. And I think that part of it is, I don't think we should overlook the notion and the the lengths that, that... these promoters are willing to go do to try to hype up every season of the ultimate fighter. Right? I heard that this season is going to be this the best season, season is ever. going to be the best season ever exclamation point. But like they've done it so many times that no, but seriously this time they have the guy who's going to be the next, oh, uh, this, this, uh, this coming season. Do you think that it will be the best ever? Yeah. Best ever. They have uh, one person who's supposed to be the best, uh, the next George St. Pierre, um, the next Rocky Balboa. Okay. Uh, and the next uh, Thor. Uh, wow. All rolled into yeah. one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, call me when the next Clubber Lang shows up on, <laughs> on the Ultimate Fighter. No, but I mean, like, they've done this, what? This, they're going to do this like 19 times now. Uh, and so you got to sell it somehow. And if yeah. you get a guy on there like Uriah Hall, who during the, the course of the show does legitimately appear, I guess, as Dana White would probably say, nasty, uh, you want to, you want to, you want to play that up, man. You want to, uh, to mention that as much as possible. We saw the same thing uh, with uh, was it Felipe Nover that they said in the in Felipe a previous Nover. season was going to be uh, next Anderson the next Silva. Anderson Silva and yeah. he like washed out of the UFC in two fights. Okay, you're right about that. However, if we're going to talk specifically about Uriah Hall, uh, I did think that watching Uriah Hall this time, it felt like okay, this so this has got to be the fight, right? This is the one where he he lives up to those at least some of the expectations because physically he does seem to have the tools, right? Like I mean, he he's a good like fighter when he goes forward and goes after it. 
And he didn't do it in the Ultimate Fighter finale. He just kind of acted like he thought he had all night and, you know, we're just in a sparring session waiting for things to get serious. And then he did kind of the same thing against John Howard. So I can see where that frustration comes from, where you look at the guy and you think, man, physically, if you just crank up the intensity a little bit, you could be a problem for a lot of guys. And he's just not doing it and then not reacting the way you would want him to react after having that. Like Conor McGregor is out there winning a decision and being like, I feel like I lost because I did not finish that dude. And he's on the prelims. And then you got Uriah Hall on the main card who goes out there, high fives the dude into a, uh, a boring decision loss. And then afterwards says he thought it was a great fight. You know, that's where you're, you're not seeing the reaction that's in step with like the, what the outside perception of the fight is. And so it seems like he's just see, thinks he must be seeing something different than everybody else. I do think though, it's a little far for Dana White to be like, he's not a fighter. Dude, yeah, you get in there. You remember what, what my man Cuddy said on the wire? <laughs> Any man still standing after a round, you can't call him soft. That's a rule. Guy gets in there in the cage and, and fights for a living against other dudes who are in there getting paid to try and take his head off. And he's still there at the end. You can't say he's not a fighter. Yeah. Like, that's just kind of bullshit, especially if you're Dana White. Come on. I, I think that the, the mere literal fact that you are fighting in the UFC stripped to the waist against another well-trained, <laughs> unarmed combatant proves that you are, in fact, a fighter. Yeah. Like the worst, the shittiest guy who's ever fought in the UFC is 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 probably still, you know, technically a fighter. You know who's not a fighter? Dana White, who yeah. does not fight in the UFC. You know who's not a fighter? Us. We don't fight. That means we're not fighters. That dude goes in there and fights. He's, for instance, talking to one of the dudes. Uh, I know. I, I know you're you're hyped about the upcoming local MMA event here in Missoula. Well, um, is that going to go down at the at the Hilton Garden at the Arena? Hilton, uh, uh, Excellent. In, in September, he's talking to one of the guys I trained with, uh, and he said he was going to fight. And I said, "Oh, who are you fighting?" He said, "Who cares? Some guy." And I thought, "That's why I'm not a fighter because you would, would really know. care. You would really want to know. I would really care." My first question would be, "Is he better than me?" <laughs> I hope not. Uh, yeah, you know what? That is just one of the perks, I guess, of being the most powerful man in the sport. Because if you said that somebody was not a fighter, or I said that somebody was not a fighter, or any of the yeah. of we the other people of our ilk went in a public forum and, and said that, that we just didn't think one of the dudes who had just recently fought in the UFC was really a fighter, man, we would get lit up. Yeah. Deservedly so, I think. People would be crying, fighter bashing. Yes. One of my favorite terms in the mixed martial arts sphere, fighter bashing. Still don't know what that is. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the last question this week comes from Luke Hanowell. He writes, can we talk about Matt Brown? Sure. Yeah, Luke, let's, let's talk, talk about, about Matt Brown. Uh, he is on a six-fight win streak and has been considered the underdog in most of his fights. Is it just me, or should Matt Brown be more popular? I think he has all the qualities that should appeal to the quote-unquote common man and all of the... And all of the UFC fighters. I could see myself having a beer with him. I mean, for everything Matt Brown lacks in natural size and ability, he makes up for it with his heart and determination. So do you think that fans will start to come around on and what do you feel the UFC should do with Brown moving forward? See, I would say I think Matt Brown is like super popular for a dude of his of his relative stature, particularly before he went on this ridiculous six fight win streak that he's got going. I feel like he's always been a guy that was that was fairly popular with fans because he brings that that kind of uh, you know by any means necessary exciting fight uh, uh, ideology into the cage with him. I think that yeah. that. You know, he's just now starting to sort of come into his own as a contender. But I would say even before that, he was a guy who fought on free TV a lot. He was a guy who, who you know, liked to make a good showing for himself. 
uh, I think that he's a guy who's probably uh, uh, about as popular as he should be, at least at least before this run that he's been on. Now, I mean, I don't, I don't. First know. of all, I mean, he does not want to have a beer with you, though. That's yeah, that dude is. He's got a mean streak. You can see it. <laughs> you think you want to have a beer with him? He doesn't want to hang out with you. Uh, he he wants you to to go the fuck away and leave him alone. Uh, remember when he kicked that dude in the face for messing with his his chewing tobacco? That's the kind of dude Matt Brown is. Uh, now. As to the question about should he be more popular, I, I think that the issue is not so much popularity because you're right. I do think he is popular, but he's popular in a certain way. And I think that that perception is kind of harming him right now because I think he wants to be seen as, you know, elite, top level, welterweight should be in there when the contender conversation. And people are instead are like, they like him, but they like him as the tough dude who's like the third or fourth or fifth fight down on a card. You know, filling out the undercard is going to go in there and bang no matter what happens. And it's going to give you a show, uh, win or lose. I don't think, though, that people think of him in that contender conversation yet. And I, he might have to win one or two more before people c- kind of come around to that idea. Because there is like a certain... You can be popular in a couple of different ways in the UFC. And sometimes you're popular in a way where... It's fine for you to go out there, you know, and, and brawl with somebody. Everybody really likes it. But then the minute you're like, and then I'm going to kick GSP's ass, everybody's like, wait, what? <laughs> Hold on. Come on, man. Yeah. Be serious. And part of that is the curse of being a 170-pound dude, too, because, you know, if, if Matt Brown was a heavyweight, well, he would have been the champion like three fights ago. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. He already would have been champion, have lost the belt, and is now working on his comeback. Yeah, and if he was a lightweight, he'd still have to win four more fights before anybody would even talk about him. Yeah, well, that's one of the problems with the welterweight division right now is that, yes, Matt Brown is probably, uh, you know, a top 10 guy at this point, but he's also in the same division as Jake Ellenberger, Damian Maya, Carlos Condit, Rory McDonald, Johnny Hendricks. George St. Pierre, Nick Diaz, if he ever wants to come back and fight. It's not like no, he's retired. He's in it's not like he is in a shallow division. He is in one of the more talent rich divisions in the entire sport right now. So, you know, yeah, I think he's about where he should be in terms of uh of fan support and also uh uh you know what the UFC what the UFC should do with him, which I guess we didn't answer that part of the question. He certainly has to fight a a contender at this point, right? Yeah. You know what? You mentioned Nick Diaz. If we get that guy to come out of retirement, that would be an awesome fight. Yes, it Matt would. And, you know, one thing Matt Brown, or, yeah, Matt Brown said after the fight, for one thing, he made a comment in the cage right afterwards about how he thought Mike Pyle was better than GSP right after he had beaten Mike Pyle. And everybody found that kind of laughable. Um, but he kind of said later on that something I've heard from a lot of different fighters who always say that in the gym, when it comes to sparring, Mike Pyle is one of the best dudes in the world. Yeah, that's what everybody has always said. And yet you don't really, I mean, he had a pretty good run recently, but you don't really see it that much in the cage. It's it's kind of a uh, a funny thing, and I think it's like a documented kind of phenomenon in a lot of other sports where, like, you know, practice heroes and stuff. Right. And, and it's something that we, I guess, probably wouldn't even know about it if it hadn't been such a consistent thing. You hear from so many different fighters who talk about in the gym, man, Mike Pyle is just a terror. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link at the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the Podcast. As for right now, we are going to get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, at some point, don't you feel like the fucking Chael Sonnen universe just has to collapse inward on itself from like the sheer atomic weight of the the various realities that he's created for himself? It's yeah, but just then like, when it's, once it does that, uh, it will implode and then spread out with a force greater than anything we've ever seen. Uh, and like a like a phoenix rising out of the goddamn ashes, then one day you wake up and you realize, oh God, Chelsonen is president of the United States. How did this happen? <laughs> the dude is like a walking version of Candy Crush at this point. He runs out of lives and he just waits twenty minutes and he gets five more. I don't get that reference. Well, that's because you, sir, are an internet snob. Okay, go home and ask your wife about it. I'm sure she'll she'll get it. Uh, anyway, there's a lot of different ways that we could talk about this, and I, I hope that we do. Uh, let's just, I guess, start with the fight itself. Last week, we talked about how this fight against uh, Shogun Hua seemed like a winnable one for Chael Sonnen, but I don't think that either of us expected it to be quite as easy as it ultimately proved to be, and I don't know if either of us expected him to win by damn submission either. Yeah, uh, submission off his back. No less, where he, where, or at least where he finishes a submission off his back. I don't think anybody had Chael Sonnen via first-round guillotine choke in their pool. Yeah, uh, and I think that unless this, they're being a smartass, <laughs> that's right. Uh, the, the I think the submission is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, because Shogun Hua historically has not been an easy dude to submit, and secondly, because the two things that have always hamstrung Chael Sonnen in his career are his inability to finish anybody, which just sort of made him a guy who went out there to grind out decisions, and coupled with that, his own shoddy submission defense. So he had this sort of like poison pill uh, situation going on with his own skills where he had to necessarily expose himself for uh, 15 minutes for the duration of the fight, and that the, the thing that always happened to him was that he would get tapped out from the bottom. And I think that, you know, I don't know how old exactly he is, you know, in his 30s for sure. Uh, And so you don't want to, I don't want to like allege that Chael Thirty-six. he's 36. And at at that age, I don't want to allege that he's going to like completely remake himself as a fighter. But certainly since the Anderson Silva loss, the first one, I think that he's been working a lot more on his submission game because he is not a dummy and understands that, hey, if I could have a, if I could stop guys via submission, I essentially close up one of the big holes in my game. And I think that if he can consistently do that, that's going to be a really, really good thing for him. And I think that, that uh, this, this Shogun submission shows that, you know, that, that, that's not a joke, man. He's coming along in that area. You know, I think some of that is uh, a wrestler thing, that wrestlers in MMA get it in their heads that you, go, you want to be on top. You want to get the fight to the ground, stay on top, grind away from the top there, and that's how you're going to win. And so they don't really want to take a whole lot of risks like going for submissions uh, if, if it's the kind of submission that might cause them to give up the top position. And now we see uh, with this one, this is a great example of one where he locks it up from the top when Shogun is trying to, to get up. And then when he feels like he's got it in there, he's not afraid to fall to his back. I mean, that shows like a confidence in his submission game that I don't think we've seen before. Also, like as you said, it's a difference between being like offensive with the submission game and, and just trying to stay out of submissions. Uh, because the problem he had before was he gets so carried away being on top of you and trying to go all Hulk smash on you that he would you know put his hands on the mat, leave his arms out there, uh, and get caught. 
Um, now it seems like he, he's changing his, what he's trying to do in the fight. Like he's not just trying to stay there and beat you up with elbows and make it look to the judges like he's winning. He's actually going in there and thinking about how he can put you away. I, the question I wonder is, what does it tell us if you're able to do it against Shogun Hua, who you mentioned, not an easy out, but also doesn't seem like he's exactly in the, the prime of his career. Sometimes he shows up, he looks awesome, like he's just going to go out there and, and smash your head in with a hammer. Other times, kind of looks like he's not totally there. Um, this one, I was surprised at how easily he was taken down and how, how willing he was to play that game back and forth with Shale Sonnen. Yeah, that was a little bit surprising. And Sonnen, I think I've said it before on the show, he really... Uh, is one of the only guys that I can think of in the sport. Maybe he, he and Ben Askren are the only two guys that I can think of that they will just go out there without any pretense that they're going to try to stand up with you. They will not set up their takedown at all except for one flailing right hand that they throw immediately after the bell. And then they'll just dive on your legs for a double and they'll get it. Yes. It's, it's, it's crazy, man. I think it's, it, it speaks to, uh, how well Chael Sonnen's particular wrestling game adapts itself to MMA because, you know, he did the same thing to, to Brian Stan in their fight, uh, where he, he just, just takes you down without, without any preamble whatsoever. And there's, no. and there doesn't appear to be a goddamn thing you can do about it. Yeah. And it's basically, basically like, let Chael Sonnen know when it's time to shoot for the takedown by saying, fight. He's going to march right across there. Boom. Uh, okay, takedown time now. You know, you, other guys, like you see Phil Davis against Leo Machida, and Phil Davis comes out there clearly being like, well, I got to show this guy I'm not afraid to, to bang with him on the feet, throw, throw some jabs out there, maybe some kicks. And then we get into like the three-minute mark or something, and I'll start thinking about that takedown. Right. No, Chael Sonnen's going to come right across and just basically say, you know what I'm going to do, I know what I'm going to do, here it is. Yeah. Uh, I kind of like that. I, you know, I, I do too, I guess. It's, it's a throwback in a lot of ways to – to the bygone days of when wrestlers used to just dominate the sport with their, with their pure grappling skills. And there was nothing anybody could do to stop them from taking them down. Um, I, you know, one of the other things we talked about last week about this fight was that we weren't sure how relevant it was going to be. And I think that ultimately Sonnen's win here only underscores the bizarre nature of his career path. Uh, you know, he goes out and, and really knocks, Shogun Hua for out of the, even the fringe of the top 10 uh, at the light heavyweight division, maybe for good, goes out there against a guy who's a former champion and just wears him around like a hat in the 205 pound division and then immediately calls out pushover middleweight Vanderlei Silva in the post fight. Uh, you know, and then in the aftermath, uh, all this weird weirdness happens where you know Sonnen gets called out by Leota Machida yeah. he continues to get called out by Vitor Belfort the every member who of the in Brazilian turn gets national called soccer team by Gegard Mousasi again <laughs> and again and and so yeah it's like just at the moment that you'd think that Sonnen had established some momentum at light heavyweight he goes he's apparently going to go back down to middleweight and try his hand there so i mean he's a money weight at this point yes Yes. And so I guess my question to you is like, what, if anything, makes sense for him at this point? You know, I think that he's got a pretty good fix uh, on where he's at and, and what his best case scenario is at this point. I think maybe people are overthinking it, saying, oh, well, now he wants to go back down to middleweight because if Chris Weidman stays the champion, then there's a new path to, to a title there. Uh you know, and I, he's a competitive guy. I'm sure he'd love to fight Anderson Silva again. I'm sure he'd love to fight Chris Weidman. You know, I'm sure he'd love to fight for, for a title. If you gave him a chance to fight John Jones again, I bet he'd probably talk himself into thinking he could win. Uh, but I also think that uh, 
he knows how he's going to make his money and stay relevant in this sport. When you look at Chael Sonnen and you look at like his record, it's amazing how popular he is for a guy that typically does not have very exciting fights. Even when he's going out there, like this one where he finishes him, you know, it's a good win for him. It's a good finish. Not a super exciting fight. You don't really feel any urge to sit back down and watch that fight again. I mean, Alistair Overeem, Travis Brown, that's one I want to watch again. You know, Chael Sonnen's, uh, except for when he loses... They're not usually that exciting to watch. And uh, he's also a dude who is really only in the UFC at all because of just a ridiculously bizarre set of circumstances. I mean, you would have thought that the best days of his career were over five, six years ago. Yeah. And then because of all this weirdness with Paulo Filo, he, he manages to like vault himself back into the UFC. And I think if we're reading between the lines, we can probably surmise that once he get ba- he gets back there, he thinks, all right, motherfuckers, this time <laughs> I'm going to make my mark. I'm going to make some money. And, you know, I'm going to develop this ridiculous professional wrestling persona for myself. But you know, a, a couple of things here. One is that he's smart enough to know, look, I'm going to go ahead and, and plan my own path out and kind of show my hand there so that people can see, here's why I should care about the next thing that Chael Sonnen is doing. It's already laid out here. He spends his entire life, first of all, dedicates his fight to uh, people battling cancer, like his grandmother and his friend, and then it goes immediately into his shtick where he threatens Joe Rogan and, yeah. and, and calls out Vanderlei Silva. Uh, and he knows that, like, you got to give some people some forward momentum coming off of a fight. You don't want to sit around and let other people decide what's next for you. You want to kind of be dictating that you're on your own, and he's smart to do that. Uh, but I also think that the other thing is when you when you look at how, like, where he's come from and how he's managed to to stay at this point, he's a guy who realizes that, People say that this is what they want, these kind of like these certain kind of fights. But really, if you can just be the guy who seems like a star, if you can build that that, that certain like popularity into it where people just want to watch you for whatever reason, that trumps what you actually do in the cage in a sport where they have to sell tickets yeah. and they have to sell pay-per-view buys. I mean, as long as you don't totally fucking suck every time you get out there, you can get away with a lot more. And I mean, the way he's done it, the way other people have tried to copy him in doing it, show that it's not as easy as it looks. Other guys have tried to do Roy Nelson has tried to do a little bit of that when he saw how much success Chael was having. Other guys have tried to do it. You got to be kind of a clever dude. You got to be a smart guy to be able to pull pull this stuff off. Chael Sonnen makes it work. If anything, he should thank those guys who have tried to do it since him because they show that hey, not just any dummy can get in there and, and get on a microphone and make that work. Yeah, he certainly he makes it look easy, and I think it's a thing that especially when you, once you consider the the sheer amount of repetition that he has to do, like he's got to act that way in every interview that he does. He probably does you know a week's worth of of days long interview stints where he does that every single time he, but he doesn't do it every single time cuz i i know from doing phone interviews with him that you don't always know what you're going to get sometimes he'll do it and then other times you're like you're waiting you're waiting for him to turn it on and you're you're he'll just play it straight and play it like really calm and you're like okay What's what's the angle here? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like well, Stephen it, Colbert's character where like sincerity becomes impossible because you're just like, OK, so what's he trying to pull right now? Yeah. Well, a lot of times I think it depends on what kind of story he's trying to tell in the lead up to the fight. Uh, anyway, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And we will get out into round number two for this week. Ben, I know that we're going to talk about this topic uh, in, in more in detail 
in round number three. But this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to the new Fox Sports 1 talk show, Crowd Goes Wild, which I should say, by way of personal admission, that I have not watched. And oh, good. In fact, I would say probably will never watch it since simply watching the two-minute and eight-second-long promo video on the Fox Sports 1 website makes it look like that channel decided to make a show out of all the stuff that I hate about sports on television. Firstly, you get into its promise that it's going to, quote, put the fans first. Oh, good. As if the problem with current sports programming on television is that it does not pander enough to its viewers. (laughs) Secondly... The overall vibe of the show, which apparently is, oh, man, this show is just going to be wacky and fun. It's going to be a bunch of guys just hanging around in a room, just talking, shooting the shit about sports. Isn't that kind of what we do? Yeah, but different. Okay. Different. Thirdly, you know, I don't know any other way to put this other than say Regis Philbin. Because <laughs> nothing says edgy sports talk show. Like 108-year-old Regis, Regis Philbin. Philbin. And lastly, the the claim in the in the promo video that this show is going to be my, quote, entertainment meets sports talk show, and that they're going to ask Hollywood celebrities what they think about sports. <laughs> oh, please. No! The only thing that could be better for me is if they also ask Hollywood celebrities their views on politics. That's the only thing that could trump that. Yeah, have you noticed that it seems like Fox Sports 1 in general, like their their kind of pitch for how they're different from ESPN seems like, we're sillier. Yes. We're just yes. To be, not to be taken as seriously. Yes, and we will talk about that in round three, but but Crowd Goes Wild is an, just an example of one thing that makes me really frightened for the future of Fox Sports 1. So are basically, you fucking kidding you're, me? Are you fucking kidding me? Because that's the, just the show in just general the show that itself. you have not and will not watch. That's correct. Okay. Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? Once again, hate to do it, but it has to go out to Bellator. For Bellator 99 in September, the organization that said it wasn't just going to go pick up UFC cast-offs, man, because they're too busy building their own stars, has a planned light heavyweight bout between Vladimir Matyushenko and Houston Alexander. I'll say that again. Vladimir Matyushenko. The janitor. And Houston Alexander. The He's from Stop Nebraska. It. Stop he's it. A, okay. You fucking kidding me with this? Are you That's the most like UFC cast-off-ish fight that you can make right now. I didn't even know Houston Alexander was still around. I assumed that he like owned his own dry cleaner somewhere. And that would, that would constitute the American dream. Fucking kidding Guy me. has a couple of fights in the UFC, parlays that into a series of wildly successful coin-op car wash stalls <laughs> all over the Nebraska area. You could do a lot worse. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, in heavyweight action on Saturday night, Alistair Overeem showed up looking suspiciously like a regular human being, and then, for the second fight in a row, was beating the shit out of his opponent right up until he wasn't. What do we make of this? Is this just more evidence that the best parts about Alistair Overeem were 
performance-enhanced drug use-related because it seems like the guy is getting smaller and worse at fighting ever since he got busted for PEDs. Yeah, I mean, certainly just in terms of physical appearance, he didn't look quite as bad this time around as he did for the Bigfoot Silva fight. Well, although he looked came in better in, shape. Yeah, he looked in better shape, although he came but in smaller. and weighed nine pounds less uh, than he did for the Bigfoot Silva fight. As a, as my wife put it, and I think it was accurate, this Overeem looked like the real human that the action figure Overeem of three years ago was based on. Yeah, actually, today before we recorded this, I went back and watched some of those old fights where he does, you know, he's got uh the the weird muscles in between his pectorals and his uh and his ab- abdominal muscles he's got like the weird the, the 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 strip of muscles that otherwise only uh exist on action figures and during and during the uh the fight where he goes in i think it's before he fights Todd Duffy he's described by Michael Schiavello as having more muscles than a seafood platter uh and also Jesus described as the most frightening See sight in the mixed martial arts world, I believe, is also how he's described by Michael Schiavello. And that's the thing about these new Overeem fights that I don't think we can ignore, just like you said. And, and you know, we can talk about the actual action in the fight in a minute because he really did come pretty pretty close to actually finishing Travis Brown, and then we're probably maybe not having this exact conversation. But at the same time, man, you just cannot ignore the fact that it just doesn't look like the same person in there having these fights than the guy who knocked out Todd Duffy in like 45 seconds. And, who in turn did not look like the same guy who fought in, in Pride. Right, and the, the dude who like dumped Brett Rogers onto the canvas like he was a small child or like a, a doll, a tiny toy. Uh, and that's the thing that sticks out most about Overeem. Um, like, like I said, he, he probably comes pretty close in this fight to finishing Travis Brown, and maybe that casts it in a completely different light. But Yeah, if that was stopped, nobody would be complaining, really. Yeah. At this point, though, I mean, the guy's lost two in a row, and I, you know, I've said it before on the podcast. If I was the UFC, I would be essentially looking for an opportunity to cut this guy because I just don't think – that his presence there is worth the potential headache that he could cause for you just knowing the fact that most fans view him as a guy who's on PEDs. I would I would be looking for the opportunity to show him the door, especially now that he's got these back-to-back losses, which once again, in another situation, seem to cement the UFC's worldview that like, oh, you know, Overeem was just... Uh, overrated. He was over in Japan fighting a bunch of bums and he comes over here and he can't hang with the true best fighters in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, even though one of those fighters is clearly Bigfoot Silva, who came over from Strike Force himself. And even though he did beat the shit out of Brock Lesnar. That's right. The former UFC heavyweight champion. I mean, if I'm the UFC, I, I just shuffle this guy to the side at this point and just Dana White it up talking about how we were right and everybody else was wrong about how, uh, this guy wouldn't be able to hang with our with our fighters. I can see a couple different ways of looking at that because you do bring up a good point what they should do with him. For one thing, you're right that keeping him around now, he has that that steroid stench sticking to him. And it doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon because everybody's always going to be looking to see like how he, he appears physically when he shows up at, uh, at the weigh-ins. And it's like if he does get back on the winning track now – does it just make people think like, well, he must be back on the steroids then because we saw what happened to him when he wasn't. Uh, I think the thing is, though, that now that he's losing, everybody assumes that it's that he's off steroids because he got caught and he doesn't want to risk it again. Uh, and so that explains why he's losing now and why he was awesome before. But if you if you cut him now, aren't you kind of inadvertently sending the message of, 
We only liked him when he was on steroids. Therefore, everybody, if you want to stick around here, you better be steroided up because it's the only way you're going to compete and be able to hang with UFC caliber fighters. Maybe, but I think you could explain it away. I think that, that but they didn't if, cut him when he got caught, right? You know? Yeah. Well, they just wanted to give him a chance, Ben, to see if he could perform clean, you know. And then he goes out and loses two fights in a row. Clearly, he's not of the caliber of the guys we've got over here, et cetera, et cetera. Blah blah blah. And the thing, I mean, the 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 real uh, uh, period on the end of the sentence for me is they don't need this guy. Like he's not at this point bringing anything to the heavyweight division that you know you couldn't get from a, a number of other guys who who can can you know compete for the title and, and maybe be stars in that division certainly not the way we might have thought that he was going to going to you know run away with the division when he came in and beat Brock Lesnar and we thought he was going to fight for the title and then yeah everything that happened happened now he just seems like he kind of a, a guy who is washed out of the division i at this point you know, I guess the the argument for keeping him around would be that the heavyweight division is so damn shallow that you could just keep him around and, and, and you know, maybe have him rematch with Bigfoot now that they're both coming off losses or something like that. Or rematch like that. with Todd Duffy. Yes. Think the Duff or man has earned it. rematch with the Duffmeister. But, I mean, really? You would keep this guy around to do those things? It just <laughs> To me, it's just like, man, just cut bait with this guy when you've got the chance. Yeah, and let him go over there to, to Bellator, so then you can use that as more evidence that Bellator sucks. Yeah, man, it almost doesn't matter where he goes. If he goes back to Japan, it just further uh, underscores the, the the story that you want to tell. And if he goes over to Bellator, it just gives you more ammunition to fire at them. So I would just say, just quietly usher the guy out of side exit. Do you think that there's any way for this to act either intentionally or unintentionally as a a warning or a cautionary tale to other fighters who are in the UFC right now and who are probably using performance-enhancing drugs and haven't been caught yet uh, and are thinking maybe I'll be the guy who's not caught and, you know, I, I got to do this to stay competitive. If they see what's, what becomes of Overeem, is that a way to be like, look, you can only outrun that for so long. Eventually you get popped. It sticks with you. And then as soon as things start going bad for you, everybody wants to see you out of there. Maybe, but he gets to keep all that money that he made. That's so true. probably not. <laughs> I mean, I true. think that I think that if that's your line of thinking, you're you are doing the thing that I always do, where you are asking these guys to be normal human beings, whereas you know they just aren't. They're they're probably going to assume that they're never going to get caught because they're going to do it the right way anyway. Yeah, and, and even, besides, their reasons for using steroids are totally legit. Whereas everybody like right. they're doing they're it just, just to doing stay competitive. Because whereas everybody, everybody else, else is doing it. Everybody else is doing it because they're lazy and want an edge. All right, well let's let's talk about Travis Brown at the same time because this is a guy who who I think to me even now used to have a lot more momentum than he does prior to the loss to Bigfoot Silva. You know, it seemed like he was going to be a big time contender in the division, and then he suffers that loss where you know, uh, admittedly he got hurt early on. Uh, then he comes in and and beats Alistair Overeem in this in this fight, which I think everyone is acting like is a huge feather in his cap, and it probably is, but. To me, during this fight, Travis Brown didn't necessarily go out there and make himself look like a world beater in this fight. I don't come away from this fight thinking, oh, man, this is the guy who's going to beat Cain Velasquez or Junior Dos Santos or, for that matter, Daniel Cormier. No. Okay. Here's what Travis Brown did show us, uh, that he's a tough son of a bitch. Yeah. Which you know? I think we probably knew from before. but Well, okay. They, I think we saw it a little bit in that Antonio Silva fight where he blows out his hammy. 
uh, and still is in there trying to do the best he can on one leg. But, you know, he got knocked out in that one. So it's like, hey, way to go. Now pick yourself up and go to the hospital. But this is one where he's getting his ass kicked. I mean, 90% of other heavyweights are done there, man. They're, they're going to stay there on one knee, eating hammer fists and hooks until the referee finally steps in there and saves him. And he keeps getting back up. Uh, and then comes back and wins it. I mean, it seemed like over and through everything he had there, and then that kind of helped Travis Brown because he could just keep throwing that front kick out there, and Overeem's not even going to bother to get out of the way. Uh, so, yeah, Overeem did do him a favor in that sense, but, I mean, he did show off some toughness. Yeah, so, sure. And I don't mean to totally malign Travis Brown like he's not a good fighter. He no, is. He's a you're great take, fighter. You're taking it away from him. You're taking a win away. I'm not taking it away from him. God knows that... At Bigfoot Silva's a lot loss is the only loss of his career. So, I mean, sh- the guy could still turn out to be a perfectly legitimate contender. I'm just saying that for most of this fight, I saw him doing a lot of what I would describe as really classic heavyweight MMA fighter stuff. Well, that's where like thing. he's throwing ponderous hooks that are all off balance and kind of stumbling around a little bit. You know, he didn't grab onto his own short staff to catch his breath, which is the most heavyweight <laughs> MMA fighter thing you could do. But well, you know, he didn't he didn't come out of this looking tremendous. I mean, he okay. got a highlight reel knockout out of it. He showed that he was tough. He weathered the early storm uh, from Overeem. But at the same time, it's not like I'm clamoring to see him fight any of the top three, four guys in that division now. When you start asking, though, hey, did this performance make him look like he would beat Cain Velasquez? I think that it, right now, at least our perception is that none of the really big, you know, Six five, six six, six seven heavyweights look like the kind of fighters that beat Cain Velasquez. It seems like one of the things that we've seen so far is that if you're going to beat Cain Velasquez, you have to. Be, it's going to be one of the smaller, more athletic guys in the division, or you're just going to have to catch him with one big shot. Uh, and you know that's kind of like playing the lottery there. You know that might pay off sometimes, but more often you're probably going to lose that way. I think that with with Cain Velasquez, at least, it's the a different heavyweight era. It's not where it's two big guys going to throw and whoever connects first, the way Travis Brown described this fight is probably going to win. Uh, you're going to have to be a better athlete and you're going to have to keep at it for a long time. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Travis Brown isn't, he's a tall guy, but he's not one of these enormous hulks. He, I think he was like 236 pounds for this fight. He's it's like six, seven. Yeah. He's tall, but he's like one of the more athletic svelte guys in the division. I'm just saying, you know, I didn't see anything from him in this fight that makes me think that that he's going to take out those top guys. Not that, not that there are a lot of guys in the division that I think could do that. So maybe that's an, an unfair barometer. I don't know. Travis Brown, Josh Barnett, you wouldn't want to see that fight. Oh, absolutely. But I don't think Josh Barnett is one, one of the top three, four guys in that division. I named him Velasquez, Dos Santos, Cormier. I guess that's only three. And Cormier might be gone soon. Who knows? That's true. I'll believe it when he gets on the scale. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, I think nearly any way you cut it, you have to consider the first UFC event on Fox Sports 1 to be a pretty good success. Uh, the action, by and large, was pretty outstanding and, and provided the kind of card that 
you got to believe the UFC was hoping for on this first very big weekend uh, in the company's history. And then uh, in the wake of it, the ratings have also looked good. We we did a uh, 1.38 rating, whatever that means, sure. uh, and okay. 1.78 million viewers for the three-hour main card. Uh, and and then according to uh, Dave Meltzer, the reigning ratings guy in the in the MMA uh, media world, uh, the most remarkable thing. This is a quote for him. Even more remarkable was that the first night of a new station beat all four major networks on Saturday night in key demographics. When it came to adults eighteen to forty nine year, years old, as well as males eighteen to thirty four and eighteen to forty or forty nine, the group UFC is expected to be strong in. Is that so, all one sentence? Uh, yes. Um, wow. So it seems, it seems positive. Although as I think anybody knows, I'm not a huge ratings guy. I don't, I leave that to people who know what it means because like I said, that 1.38. Sure. Okay. What did uh, cops do? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, uh, all the reaction is that, that, that this is positive. Um, I guess my, my question is still at this point, we don't know a lot about what Fox Sports 1 or Fox Sports 2 are going to look like moving forward. And so it's possible that the UFC and, and Fox Sports has established a really good uh, symbiotic relationship between the two of them, you know, moving forward. At the same time, I assume most UFC fans probably aren't going to watch Fox Sports 1 when the UFC is not on it. And I still am not entirely clear about what the programming is going to look like on that channel or what kind of live sports they're going to have. So to me, the the fate of the channel and the relationship still very much up in the air. You know, I keep going back and forth on whether, what would be the the better scenario for both the, Uf, the UFC and MMA in general. Uh, because like you, I was excited to see, you know, the UFC doing well in Fox Sports 1 and to see like, okay, they've got – they're right out front for this big launch, this network that Fox is obviously putting a lot of money into and, and really wants to be successful, and they realize the UFC is going to be a big part of that. But then I wondered, by looking at the other lineup, who's going to watch the rest of this shit? And if if the answer to that is fucking nobody, is that good for the UFC? Because then you become like the, the must-have like property there, the one big thing you got going for you. Or does that just mean like you're on a, a weak, channel overall and that eventually Fox will decide that it's not worth it and pull the plug on it and then have to move the UFC somewhere else or out entirely you know who knows so I don't know I feel like I can make an argument on that either way you'd hope that the takeaway if it does go down that way is that Fox would look at it and say okay building around the UFC is smart trying to come up with a sillier alternative to ESPN maybe not so much yeah, and I mean, maybe to Fox Sports credit, it does look at this point like they're trying to build around some of those uh, niche markets. I mean, the UFC clearly is that way. They're also going to have, my understanding, a lot of NASCAR on this channel, which is seems like they're being lumped the, in with soccer as a niche sort of property. The, sort of the same deal. Also, soccer. Uh, I saw a story a couple weeks back about how Fox Sports, I don't know if it's Fox Sports 1 or Fox Sports 2, but is going to show the season opener of the Bishop Gorman high school football season, which for those of you scoring at home is the is the high school in Las Vegas where uh, Lorenzo Fertitta went. And uh, he and, and Dana White are now big boosters of that 
of that football team. Uh, it's also they're nationally ranked. Let's not make it sound like the the only reason Fox is going to show it is because the, the their partners over at the UFC love that school. So still, like still high school football. It's though. still kind of weird to put that on on your your twenty four hour uh, like the within like the first two weeks of your launch of your twenty four hour sports network. Uh, well, let's. I mean, we would be remiss though if we didn't talk about what happened earlier last week where it looked like Fox Sports kind of got caught with its ass swinging in the breeze, uh, <laughs> where just days away great f- visual. with just days away from this uh, UFC card and the launch of the new network, they were only in about half as many homes as they had promised to be because it seems like they really screwed up trying to leverage America's major cable providers on their uh, subscriber fee. Yeah. Well, it seems I can understand where the uh, the cable providers were coming from, where it's like, wait a minute, you're going to change the name of the network. It's, you're going to, hey, Speed Channel is no more. Now it's Fox Sports 1. By the way, we want four times as much money for it now. I can see why the providers might have been like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. You don't just get to change the name uh, and throw a few new shows on there and come out with like a, a glitzy launch package and immediately charge us more money for it. And it seemed like it was kind of this game of chicken. Uh, Maybe Fox Sports eventually realized, look, if it was just you against DirecTV or just you against Time Warner, then maybe you can afford to go down to the wire on it. And if they don't have it, they look like the assholes to the people who are their subscribers. But if it's three big ones, DirecTV, Dish Network, Time Warner, I believe it was, then it's not going to be them who look like the biggest asshole. It's going to be you because you're the one people are going to blame. And you know, enough people who are subscribers to different cable operators are all going to see you as the common denominator. So they kind of had to cave in there. But I mean, I wonder too, if maybe some of that, uh, in a weird way helped at least the UFC, uh, because there were, there was a lot of different, uh, hype coming into this from a lot of different angles. One thing in Boston, you had them talking about it like it's 1996 all over again. Right. And here we got this human cockfighting stuff that minors shouldn't be allowed to see. Uh, then you had the the cable snafu. Are you going to be able to see it? Are you not? In a lot of ways that maybe seemed not like the most positive, you still had a bunch of people talking about this before it happened. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I think maybe this original number, ratings number, isn't that indicative of, of what's going to happen in the future, or, or at least it's too early to tell, man, you know, like, because there was a lot of uh, additional stuff going on around this card, particularly with the launch of Fox Sports 1. I think there was a lot of interest. There was a lot of people who wanted to make sure they tuned in. So, so the thing I think is going to be, you have to be able to uh, sustain that number, maybe even build on it before we can call any of this this stuff a success, particularly if... If, you know, Fox Sports is only at least in the in the short term making like one fourth of the amount of money per subscriber that they thought that they were going to make. I saw I think it was the Sports Business uh, Journal online said it was going to amount to a difference of something like six hundred million dollars in revenue that they thought that they were going to make. So that makes it seem like, well, this thing better be a success in the early going. So when you go back to the table with those cable providers, you can get a little bit more money for it or yeah. else we might be in some trouble here. Well, uh, it, and that is why you, I think we should, you know, close out this round by talking a little bit about the format for Fox Sports 1 itself and how it seems a little bit strange. Uh, but if you had something else you wanted to say, well, go for it. I think one of the things, that for, at least for the UFC's interest in it, if we're talking about how well the UFC is going to do there, uh, again, 
I think it's going to depend on what kind of quality of cards they're willing to put on this thing. Are, are you going to treat it like Spike TV old-timey fight nights where Luigi Fioravanti is a headliner? Oh, Luigi Fioravanti reference. Hey, no Didn't disrespect. Didn't think you were going to get that. No disrespect. On this week's CME, did you? Uh, but, or is it, are they going to treat it where we get actual... Because this is a... You look at this card. This is a card you want to see. I mean, you got Chael Sonnen who's going to go out there and just sell the damn thing. Uh, people like him want to see him fight. You got some heavyweights who are going to smash each other's skulls. Uh, you know, you got a few other good fights on there. So I don't know. I don't see them putting together that quality of fight card every single time out. I think that that was the, the launch one, the same way when they launched on the, their first fight on the regular big Fox network was the heavyweight championship. Uh, and the cards that we've seen since haven't been anywhere near that, that same level of fight. So a lot depends on what the UFC is willing to, to give up uh, on that channel to, to take off their pay-per-view uh, menu. Uh, and I don't know. I, I, ideally, you'd like to see them put some of the bigger fights out there because I think it's just good for the UFC, good for the sport, good for the guys who get to fight there. Um, but it also seems like uh, maybe if you're the UFC sitting there going, so you're going to use these silly sports shows uh, as a way to get the audience, and then, then you want us to jump on there and, and hope that you can deliver that audience, huh? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and those silly sports shows seem pretty silly from yeah. where I'm sitting. I talked about Crowd Goes Wild early on, but I, I just think that it's kind of strange that the overall mission statement, or at least my perception of of what Fox Sports 1 wants to be, uh, it just seems like a weird direction to take the entire channel. You know, I think that any time... Uh, a news show or specifically a sports show goes forward with the notion that it's going to be fun in all caps. I start to get nervous because yeah, that usually that well that usually means it's going to be an unwatchable yuck fest, pretty much. <laughs> uh, and so this whole idea that that Fox Sports uh, is going to do this thing that is like an edgy and a hip alternative to what it views as like a stuffy buttoned down ESPN product, which I think. Fox referred to as being like too, too reliant on stats. Like, uh, it just seems, I don't know, man. I don't, that's, let's just say not that I'm the normal television viewer, but that's the exact opposite direction. I would have gone with my 24 hour sports network. <laughs> well, okay. And here's the thing. Maybe one thing we're not considering is that maybe this shit just isn't for us. That's true. That's uh, true. Also though, one of the things I noticed watching a little bit of their, kind of sports center alternative uh that was on immediately after the fights uh fox sports live you're talking about fox sports fox live? sports live okay just yeah. checking uh was how it seemed like they had decided all right we paid money for this graphics department and god damn it we're gonna use it and in ways that you never thought that graphics could possibly be incorporated into sports highlights. Cause it'd be like somebody is hitting a baseball and they'd freeze it and show you like a giant red arrow that would show the trajectory that the baseball was going to go on. And then they'd play it. And sure enough, there went the baseball and you're like, what did I learn from that? By the way, or they at one point we're showing See, that's like, just fun though. That's just edgy. That's hip right there. That red arrow. That's <laughs> we're showing like where a guy was looking um, by like this little blue triangular field that comes out from his eyes. And it's like, no, I can see where he's looking because I can see where his head is pointed. I get it. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, it's seems like a, that's going to be about as popular as when uh, they decided the thing that would make hockey popular in America is if they just put a big, big highlight thing on the puck wherever it went. Yeah. Well, yeah, man, it'll be interesting. We'll we'll have to see how it works out. I think uh, MMA fans are probably probably hoping for the best, and and maybe it'll work out that way. Let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here. Ben, what's uh, your just saying stuff for this week? 
Jed, I'm just saying, I don't know if you watched the weigh-ins for this event. Oh, uh, did I? But we saw something that we see a lot of, uh, especially when the UFC goes to cities that it doesn't go to all the time, i.e. not Las Vegas. Wait, are you talking about Joe Rogan wearing those cyborg glasses? I am not. Okay. I'm talking about one Travis Brown, uh, who, according to Wikipedia, his full name is Travis Kowalololoa Brown. Okay. Uh, right. From... That uh, sounds Bostonian in nature. From Oahu, Hawaii, gets up there on the stage in Boston. Sure enough, dude is sporting a Red Sox shirt and, and even taps it to draw attention to it. I'm just saying, if you're not even remotely from the area, don't try and get that that, that cheap fan pop by, by just throwing on whatever local sports team you think the, the people in the crowd might be for. It's transparent. Everybody sees what you're doing. And it's just sad. It's just sad for everybody because they feel obliged to cheer. Oh, Red Sox. And, you know, you look like you're pandering. I'm just saying, you're from Hawaii, man. Own that. Own that. At least Kenny Florian had the balls to go uh, into Vancouver when they were in the Stanley Cup Finals uh, against the Boston Bruins and rep his hometown of Boston with a Bruins jersey. There you go. I'm just saying. You want to get those people on your side, probably the best thing to do is knock out Alistair Overeem with a crazy front kick. I don't, that'd work. A lot of good that does you at the weigh-in, though. Ben, this week I'm just saying, man, how many times are we going to do this where we have an awesome fight between two top ten guys in the featherweight and bantamweight division, and we stick it on the prelims, just like we did this past week to Michael McDonald and Brad Pickett, who as... Anyone could have told you was going to happen. Went out and worked an absolute crackerjack. Crackerjack. And yet it's hanging out down on the prelims. Meanwhile, we get John Howard and Uriah Hall, who's not even a fighter. I've heard. Yeah. Uh, How do you even get in the building? Slapping five and 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 having a good time on our on our main broadcast. I'm just saying, man. When you put together these awesome fights in the lower weight classes, you got to let them shine. You got to put them on TV. On the main card. Well, they were on actually the same channel. Yeah, no, it was I all know. on Fox Sports 1. I know. But the main card, man. I see That's where saying. you get the 1.38 rating. That's right. That's where you can compete with cops, goddammit. That's how I measure the quality of all TV shows is how they do against cops. Well, that's, that's a wide barometer for you then. Bad boys, bad boys. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week uh, previewing one of those UFC shows that are just going to start coming at us like like. Cracker Rain Jacks? Drops. Will it be Cracker Jacks? Cracker Jacks. We'll have to see. Anyway, but for this week, we're done. We're through. We're out. Did you ever see the one cops where they find the dude hiding underneath the overturned kiddie pool? I think I have seen that one. Yeah, that's a classic. Yeah. I just watched one a couple weeks ago, uh, which was clearly very early in the cops.